and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and if you're tuning in, you have 30 minutes of some of our favourite science that we want to share with you on Lost in Science this week um, and with us and, you know, coming and delivering some of uh, your favourite science, we have um, stories from Chris and Stu. Uh, but Chris, first of all, what have you got for us this week? Well, Claire, good to see you as always, Claire. Um, as always. Yeah. Um, I have a story that, look, just just from my predilections, I couldn't pass up. Uh, you know how I love a story of physicists interfering in other realms of science? <laughs> oh, um Physicists veering dangerously out of their lane. Yeah, that's I think right. Should, that's right. Should be the should be the sub the subheading um, for this this um, uh, group of stories that you have. I don't want to say they're always wrong either, because you know physicists. Some of them that's are such smart a people. physicist thing to say. Right. Like you've got to qualify everything here, or quantify everything. As, as a physicist would. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but I can't ignore headlines like. Um, a bold new theory of everything that could unite physics and evolution. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I couldn't ignore this. This is basically, it's a new theory, um, put newish theory, I suppose, being recently published in the journal Nature, though, a new article on it. Got a lot of attention um, because, yeah, it is trying to claim to reconcile physics and evolution, which a lot of people thought, is that a problem? Was that ever a problem? Uh, but hey they're doing it and Mm -hmm. it's caused a bit of a stir in some circles um i thought i would have a go at finding out what it's all about whether it makes any sense or not um small spoiler alert i did read the paper but i don't know that i 100 percent understood it all i'm not alone in this a lot of people claim they don't really understand this paper so uh, i'm going to do my best to, to talk about what it's about, but um, hey, if it sounds like I am talking nonsense, it may well be my fault. <laughs> Great. Well, um, I'll try to keep you on track, Chris. How about that? Fantastic. That sounds good. That's what I rely on you for, Claire. Great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and we also have uh, Stu giving an interview this week. That's right. The lovely Stu will be um, doing an interview. He is speaking to Jeremy Barr from Monash University about some new research on bacteriophages, I want to say. Some people say bacteriophages. I don't know. I think we agreed it's phages, didn't we? Um, I say I say phage. You say phage. Let's, let's call the whole thing off. Something like that. Well, let's not call the whole thing off. Let's actually push it further because this research is about that. So these bacteriophages, they are viruses effectively that the target bacteria, that is what they're known for. But um, this new research has found that certain mammal cells, in particular some cancer cell, mammalian cancer cells, are able to eat bacteriophages. So again, they're a type of virus. Um, oh. But yeah, these cells, it seems, are eating them and like gaining energy from consuming Whoa! That sounds uh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, pretty wild stuff. I don't know how physics can um, reconcile with this particular form of evolution, <laughs> but um, that's a new challenge for the um, 
our friends in the other story. But yeah, so that's, that'll be Stu's interview. So if you want to hear that, I guess you have to keep listening to the show. Wonderful. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Uh, my name is Chris. And as I said in the introduction, I am talking about this new theory that claims to, as they put it, reconcile physics and evolution. I realised, I don't think I gave the name of the theory, did I? No, you didn't. You've, you're leaving us all hanging. What's okay. the theory? It's called What's as- the name of the theory? It's called assembly theory. Assembly theory. Assembly okay, and theory. that's not that. That's not the theory of uh, having to assemble in large groups no. to listen to speakers. No, no, okay. it's not. It's not. But that that would be that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? It would. It would. No, it's about how things are put together. Um. So look, it is as I said also in the introduction. It's kind of got a physics basis, like it claims to be you know, a physics-related theory. The paper was actually it was published in the journal Nature and the authors, uh, one of the authors is a chemist, the lead authors, um, the lead investigator, is a chemist called Lee Cronin. But there is a theoretical physicist slash astrobiologist who's the other kind of lead researcher, Sarah wow. Walker. So, yeah, the fact that it's claiming to be physics and it's got a physicist on the author list, I think it fits as uh, my physicists, not behaving badly, but, you know, veering wildly across the rest of science so anyway um yeah and as i said they they claim to be able to unite physics and evolution which has led to a lot of evolutionary biologists saying we have no problem with physics why are you talking about this (laughs) no one thought what is your beef no one thought there was a problem um well some people thought there was a problem but i'll get to that later in the story um but yeah, there's still it's led to a, a bit of debate, and a particular debate, I guess, about how um, you know, what the purpose of this theory is, because this theory, when it says it unites physics and evolution, it's just concentrating not just on the mechanisms of natural selection, Darwinian natural selection that we know and love, but also trying to push that further into the origin of life. Right. And so, trying to get a um a physics slash evolution slash theory that will help explain the origin of life as well as the evolution once it exists. Because the origin of life obviously is one of those big questions, those things that's still debated. And it's sort of like people with different theories about what exactly happened. And this is attempting to, I guess, fill in some of the, the mechanics of that. So this is called assembly theory. Now, as well as making grand claims about evolution, they do make some grand claims about what they're doing to physics as well. Um, they like to state that physics, their, their theory basically considers any kind of object, whereas physics normally only looks at point particles, which a lot of physicists would take umbrage with that as well. So I think they're going to annoy both the physicists and the, the biologists in this one, <laughs> because physics, physics is normally quite happy with objects that aren't points. Right. Um, you know, yes. there is physics of, I mean, everything. Like, I don't feel like I don't need to explain this, but, you know, physics of, like, you know, materials, like materials science, materials physics. Anything sort of made, made up of of something. Yeah, planets and stars and things. I was, yeah, yeah. okay. So when they say points. Atmospheres. Okay, they, yeah. But they, they, they have extended physics from not only things with points to dealing with things that are not just points, which is good on them for thinking that they've discovered something new. Um, <laughs> but what they, 
So they've got this idea of this general notion of, like I said, it's just, it's about assembly. And so they try to quantify, I suppose, a kind of a form of complexity of something, of an object, which is useful for the ideas of evolution, but based on the history of the object. This is a key thing. So the key element for anything that you might look at is something called the assembly index. And they define this as the minimum number of steps that it would take to construct this thing out of its fundamental building blocks. So other people have tried to look at this kind of notion of how complex an object is by looking at its composition, this sort of stuff. But the unique thing about this one is it's looking at the history of the item, not just what it's made out of. So it's looking at what it actually takes to assemble it. Right. Okay. Okay. You don't sound impressed. <laughs> but the idea is by doing this, they um, allow for selection, uh, a form of selection, because you know because it's based on the history, it's based on all the steps that have come before it. And you can do things like once you have, for instance, you've assembled one object, then you can build on that to make other things. And so the things that come after it are sort of determined by the thing that came before it. Right. It sounds obvious. I but... mean, yeah, <laughs> this is starting to sound a bit like a video game. So I guess the other way of looking at things, you look at the, the universe, you look at, say, in fact, one is in the chemist. They, they focused on the chemistry. You look at, like, all the different chemicals that exist. Yeah. And, yes, they could all come together randomly by atoms combining. However, um, with this kind of notion, you look at how they're actually put together, you limit the number of things that can be created because it's based on the history of the things that came before it. So mm -hmm. you're not mm -hmm. determining um, the things just based on the chance of something what coming together. What could be. Yeah, yeah, but how it can actually be built. And so when you get a sample of different, like, um, the other key thing, though, is when you get a sample of different kind of chemicals, you can look at how many of them there are. Because mm. um, I suppose the way that selection works would be some kind of constructions will be more favoured than others. And so if you find more of, one particular kind of complex chemical that it indicates that it's been perhaps been selected for, um, rather than just appearing randomly. <laughs> right. Okay. So, like, okay, this is all sounding fairly abstract, I know, but they have. This is not the first paper they produced. In an earlier paper, they looked at how they could actually quantify this notion of an assembly index um, with using mass mass spectroscopy. You can basically break down the constituents of chemicals. Look what they're made out of. And so you can kind of estimate their um, this assembly index. Mm. Um, so they tried this on a whole bunch of different substances, you know, like um, things, you know, coal and that sort of stuff, um, bacteria, um, sediment from, I think, the San Francisco Bay Area or something like that. And they, they looked at what they got from this kind of um, calculated assembly index and whether compared to something was a biological origin or not. And they found that anything that had an assembly index of about 15 or above had an, usually had an origin in life, as in wow. it was so complex that it required some sort of biological system to put it together. Incidentally, the most complex one they found, once they tested, was beer. <laughs> but it's not, it's not a... Um, so they, they found that it was pretty good. They didn't get any false positives, they said. But you could get false negatives, so things that there were things that were very simple but still deprived of life. 
and one of them was notably um, 10-year-old Ardbeg single malt scotch whiskey. So that one came out with a fairly low assembly index, even though it is perhaps you know as complex as beer to produce, at least. Wow. Wow. So That's the... Yeah, okay, so there's there's some issues here. There's some issues. So it's not definitely a thing of saying, um, they're saying in they can, um, that basically they said they've got no false positives. So you find something with a high assembly index, that it means it must be constructed by life, some you know, some um, system with um, you know genetic memory or something like that to be able to assemble this complex thing. But if something had a, uh, a low index, it could be another byproduct of life, but you just can't detect it mm. using the system. Mm. So that is one of the things. There are the... And this is where some of the criticisms come into this, because there are other kind of hypothetical um, products of life that people have pointed out that this system would not be able to identify. Mm. So one of the key things in this assembly notion, for instance, was, like I said, the number of, of um, copies of something. So basically, if something is, there's a lot of copies of this complex molecule, for instance, you know that's been produced by some sort of life form. But if you only have one copy of it, doesn't really tell you anything. It could just happen to yeah. randomly come together. So, for instance, the Sistine Chapel is a good example of something that there's only one of it. Under this system, it wouldn't qualify as being produced by life because there's only one of it. It could just be a random chance that it came together. Random, just random Da Vinci. Yeah, Was that's Da Vinci? right. Yeah. And then you have sort of complex things that perhaps are not, well, no, things, products of life that, are not kind of made out of complex things or, you know, a lot of, you know, small pieces, like, for instance, um, radio signals from an intelligent civilization. They're just electromagnetic mm-hmm. waves. They are um, definitely produced by intelligence, but you can't construct them out of little building blocks like this. Mm. So, yeah, it doesn't necessarily um, pick up everything. Account for everything. Mm-hmm. Look, I think that some of this, I think they maybe have mistakenly used the wrong sort of language because they do seem to be quite fans of evolution and selection. They, what they seem to be kind of do is trying to essentially say, biologists can't explain evolution, so we're going to explain it. Um, so I don't think they're anti-evolution in that sense. They're just a bit, I guess, naive, I suppose. What this theory does, I think it, the positives for it is that it does kind of look at the idea of selection, takes it beyond natural selection as, as is typically understood. So, you know, it can address this question of how you get complex molecules that are precursors to life could arise. Um, and they test out their theory on, say, polymers, creating more complex polymers, now, a, model of, a model of how that could work. Um, it, but the other big benefit, and the key thing is, as I said, one of the authors, the, um, the physicist and thing is also an astrobiologist. And this is useful for looking at, say, life elsewhere in the universe. So mm. um, we can't guarantee that life our planets are going to be like it is on Earth. Um, so we've kind of, though, been looking so far for chemistry like we have on Earth, which is why we get things like, you know, we see methane on Mars, and on Earth, methane is produced by life forms. You go, could it be produced by life forms? But we don't know that it's not produced by some other, you know, geological form. Sure. So this essentially, in theory, allows us to identify molecules of any kind on a planet and analyse them to work out whether they could have been produced by life. Uh, rather than by natural yeah. they're complex enough it gives us a way of measuring that and quantifying that so it is quite useful um, for that purpose um they also talk about how potentially this couldn't go beyond biology so we can look at how selection could or the concept of selection could apply in the way technology is developed 
Um, and so, yeah, again, broadening this idea beyond the simple kind of squishy world of mm. natural selection. So, look, I think it has potential. Um, like I said, it's not clear at the moment whether it is solving a genuine problem, and most evolutionary biologists do seem to be unimpressed. But I get the impression it's not trying to replace their work. It's trying to extend their work. Um, but, look, it does make some very grand claims. So, look, it will be interesting to see, you know, whether it does... I guess, assemble into anything more long-lasting. You're listening to Lost in Science. We hear a lot these days about the microbiome and how it can affect human health. But one of the things we probably don't consider is that a lot of the bacteria in our bodies are existing in their own biome. And that may, in fact, have some influence on us as well. So in order to find out a little bit more about what's going on with these bacteria, I'm talking to a special guest today about bacteria and the world they live in and how it might affect the world we live in. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Associate Professor Jeremy Barr from Monash University. Thanks for having me on. Now, a lot of people are probably aware and a lot of people talk about, you know, the microbiome in the human body and all of this sort of thing. Your research is kind of adjacent to that that sort of uh, field, but what what is it that you actually study in your in your lab? Yeah, would be happy to give you a, a summary. Um, so we we study uh, a small virus that we call a bacteriophage. Um, it li literally translates to the uh, translation of eaters of bacteria. And so what these bacteriophage do is they infect and kill bacteria. So they won't infect and kill humans. They don't cause disease in humans or animals, but they're some of the biggest um, predators on the planet that specifically hunt and kill bacteria. And we look at them in the context of the human body and also in the human gut and our gut microbiomes. So bacteria are living organisms. Yes, Viruses technically are not. Is that is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, it's a bit of a, a point of contention. I I personally think viruses are a part of life. So while while they may not technically be alive, they are incredible organisms that you know impact all sorts of systems and and um, different organisms such as bacteria and. And of course, you know, humans and mammalian cells. So, so I think viruses are part of life. And in that sense, they're, they're sort of alive. But um, most people say they aren't alive in the sense that we think animals or organisms are. So, yeah, I mean, that that being one of the things about viruses is that they can't do anything on their own. They have yes. to they have to get a living cell to do all the stuff they need to do for them. Yes. Now, as a, as a result of infecting and killing bacteria isn't that counterproductive for a for a virus yes in in a sense it is but um i think this is the fascinating thing about these viruses is once they do infect a cell and and again we're looking at bacteriophages and how they infect bacteria they can do all of these amazing and and you know different things um yes we typically think that they're going to kill that bacterium and they do but they also do an array of different other functions. They can um, provide a new metabolism to that bacteria. They can change how that bacteria behaves. And so they've got a really diverse array of, of mechanisms and how they can impact and, and change the function of these microorganisms. So they, they don't just they don't just instantly kill them. They can change their behavior and change their activity before the bacteria 
expires and I, I assume releases a whole lot more viruses. Exactly. Yes, they can do lots of those functions. Um, so it gets a little bit complex, but you know there are phages or viruses that will specifically infect and kill those bacteria, replicate, blow them up and release more viruses. But there's another group of viruses, and these are more um, typical in the human gut and other ecosystems that infect, but then sort of lay dormant and, and persist in the bacterial host. And they can change their function, provide them new metabolisms, new abilities. And so they're really, really fascinating and incredible um, aspects of life. Now, some of the I know some of the bacteria in our gut are beneficial to us. We wouldn't be able to digest certain things as as readily as we do without these bacteria. Do the viruses benefit us as well? Yes, in short. Um, and this is what a lot of our research is 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 sort of focusing on. and and I might and I might provide a bit of a broader context before jumping in. Um, you know, the, the the human gut microbiome is incredible. It's it's really diverse. There's a huge number of microorganisms and it's it's personalized to each individual. So your microbiome and my microbiome are very, very different and sort of unique to us. And it gets even more complex when we start looking at the viruses, which are dominated by these bacteriophages. And so, so these bacteriophages do impact our microbiome and they do change uh, and shape the bacteria and, and, and they provide beneficial functions. Um, so as an example, some of these viruses can, can change the metabolism and that might, um, you know, increase your capacity to, to eat a certain food type. Um, so, so they're, yeah, really, really fascinating and do lots of diverse and different things. So there's like a, there's like a micro evolution happening yes. in our guts, even all the time. Yes, literally there is. Yes. Uh, that's that's really amazing. Now, the, the reason I got in touch with you is I was reading uh, an article about some research you've done recently regarding bacteriophages and um, mammalian cancer cells. Yes. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what, what, what was that research for and what did you actually find? Yeah. So... One of one of the areas of research that our our research group at Monash has been looking into is is sort of extrapolating, you know, this this idea that we've been discussing that you know bacteriophages and and bacteria are really important parts of your microbiome, and we know that you know the bacteria will interact with our own cells, our own our body and systems, um, and they can provide a lot of benefits, you know, health benefits. They can also cause disease in certain instances. And so what we wanted to begin to look at was what about these bacteriophage? What about these bacterial viruses? Do they interact with our own cells, our own mammalian cells? And, and I want to make one point here. Um, that was something that I mentioned at the start, that they're not infecting our own cells, right? They, they, cannot, they cannot infect and kill human cells, but that doesn't mean that they don't interact. And so what we began to look at was how human mammalian cells were actually interacting with these bacteriophages. And we found that they were engulfing them, sort of eating them, if you will, and taking up really, really large numbers of these bacteriophages. Um, and we were doing, you know, we were doing all of this research in the lab. So under what we call in vitro conditions, and we were working with human and other, other mammalian cells um, and in these cell culture techniques, a lot of these cells are, are cancerous cells. So we, we take them or they're isolated from cancers. And the reason is that that allows the cells to, to grow 
um, very fast and for a very long period of time. So um, we were interested in, in looking at that interaction between the bacteriophage and the human mammalian cells to see what was happening. Were there any impacts or changes? Okay. And so what, what did you, what, what, what was the interaction that you, that you found or were there obvious interactions that you found, I suppose? Yeah. So it, it was really interesting um, and, and also quite exciting when we were looking at this research. And, and so we found that these mammalian cells, these human cells were uptaking these viruses. They were sort of, you can imagine sort of sampling, reaching out into the environment, grabbing lots of these tiny, tiny bacteriophages and internalizing them. So bringing them into our own human cells. And while they were there, we then studied those cells. We, we used some different experimental techniques um, and we looked at how those cells were changing. So we compared cells that were treated with, with the bacteriophages and cells that weren't. And we found that the cells that were exposed to the bacteriophage and that were internalizing these bacteriophage, that they were actually growing faster, that they had changed their metabolism and that they were replicating and growing at a faster rate than the cells that weren't exposed to the bacteriophage. And that was a really interesting and, and different observation. It wasn't what we were expecting and, and sort of suggested that there was this potential interaction between our own cells and these resident bacterial viruses in our, in our gut microbiomes. As far as that goes, I mean, you know, having some uh, some some cells in a in a dish, and you and you've got the bacteriophages present in the dish with them. Yeah. How, how how does that sort of translate to inside the actual living human body? Yeah. Is is it likely that that's a similar thing, or is it is that such a weird situation that it's not likely to be replicated in yeah. in people? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's it's probably a little bit of both. So, so I would say, you know, first of all, this is a very preliminary study. It's very experimental. And we are looking at, you know, bacteriophage and human cells in a dish in a lab. Um, so I would not, you know, extrapolate and said say that people should go out and and you know drink lots of bacteriophages because it's gonna <laughs> make you grow faster or get stronger. Um, but you know, extrapolating this to the to the human body and the human gut. You know, coming back to the start of our talk, our gut microbiome is incredible. There's hundreds, millions of different bacteria and viruses in our gut all the time. And we know and we have evidence that these processes happen in the gut. They're happening in your body right now, every minute and every second. Your cells are constantly interacting and being exposed to the bacteria, but also to the bacteriophages. And we know from, from investigating different animals and humans that these processes do happen, that your cells in your gut are constantly interacting with your bacteriophage. They are internalizing and engulfing those bacteriophages. And it's likely that some of these processes are happening. Now, this is very early and, and we're not making any of those claims, but it's a very interesting and, and different approach. And it really opens up new, new questions and avenues that we can follow up um, and investigate and begin to understand how this may be impacting our own bodies and our own gut microbiomes. It's absolutely fascinating. And um, yeah, I just have to, you know, wonder how, how much more there is to discover that it, it seems like every time we dive down, we get a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper and how far down does it all actually go? Because, you know, um, 
you know, even the microbiome sort of stuff is relatively recent in in our understanding. So, um, yeah, this is a whole new uh, realm of research that you've opened up here. Um, look, I think we better uh, wrap it up there because um, we will run out of time. But thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy, and um, I will uh, follow your research with great interest. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for having me. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.